If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Marcus. I'm the senior pastor here, and I am grateful that each and every one of you has made it here this morning. Uh, you know, this week was the first day of fall, right? On Wednesday, September 22nd was the official first day of fall. And we had a, a small miracle this year in that it felt like fall on the first day of fall, right? Um, you know, one of our favorite things to do as a family, and we haven't done this in a couple of years because our kids have started getting into activities, but we used to go every year during October to the Smoky Mountains uh, to camp. Um, and so I have a picture here of the Smoky Mountains. It's almost unreal what the leaves look like in the fall in the Smokies. And so we loved it to be out there, uh, the changing color of the leaves, the cooler weather, um, and just that idea of fall being in the air. Now, where I grew up, uh, was in the state of Kansas, and uh, we don't have a lot of stuff there, but we did have four seasons, okay? We actually had four real seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, and so fall would come every year, but about 15 years ago, when I married Sarah, uh, we moved to Birmingham, and uh, I've spent the last 15 years of my life in the south, right, the deep south. Um, and coming here is actually even further south. And uh, I've learned that what we experience this week is a rare gift, right? To have the feeling of fall on the first day of fall. And so we took advantage of it. We spent a lot of time outdoors, um, had our first couple of fires outside, playing in the yard, uh, all those kind of things. Um, but have you ever noticed what happened? If, you, if you've lived here for very long, you know in the south, this whole thing, this, this tragedy of fall weather is what I would call it, um, happens because a cold snap comes through, uh, you get out your sweaters and your jackets, uh, you buy a pumpkin and put it on the front porch, right, to decorate for fall, you put up your little sign that says, happy fall, y'all, and, uh, and you're ready, and then about three days later, here comes the heat, your pumpkin melts on the front porch, and you have to put those sweaters back away, and you have a heat stroke going to the mailbox, all those things. But it brings up this question, is fall here? Is it already here, or is it not here, right? Because we go back and forth here in the south. And I actually think this is something that happens in our text today in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, you see, what we have is the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, and they start asking him some questions. And they're basically asking, is it, is it time yet, or is it not time? And uh, are you here yet, or are you not really here? We're going to find out how Jesus answers. And I think his answer reveals that he's saying things have changed. Because Jesus is here, everything has changed. Because the king has arrived, all things have been made new. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, still struggling with sin with brokenness, disease, hurricanes, earthquakes, the world is still broken. So has Jesus already come yet, or is there still yet more to come? You see, we live in the in-between. Jesus has already come, and he has made all things new, but not yet has everything been fully restored, and we're going to see a little bit about that this morning. But don't miss this. Because the King has come, We've seen this for the last several weeks. Because Jesus has come, we are called to follow him. So let's listen to the words of the king this morning as he speaks to us and calls out to us once again from his word. Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17 says this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. The King is calling to us this morning. See, last week we looked at the first part of this little section in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus calls out and uh, basically says to his followers, he, he calls out to Matthew and says, I'm calling you to follow me. He says, leave everything and follow me. So it was a call to follow him. And then it was a call to love sinners. Jesus said, I've not come to call the healthy, but the sick. In other words, I'm here to reach out to lost people. So today he continues to call out to us in this little section. And, and let me just give you a little reminder of where we are in the book of Matthew. Okay, we start off the book of Matthew chapters 1 and 2 with the birth of Jesus. Uh, all the amazing stuff, how the wise men come. Uh, so this is the birth of Jesus. The, the, in chapters 3 and 4, we see some stuff about John the Baptist. Well, today we see some of his disciples coming to Jesus. So John the Baptist actually baptizes Jesus in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we see Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, and that's actually a key thing that happens. We're going to come back to that uh, today. Matthew 5 through 7, we spent weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus unfolding, here's what it looks like to follow me. This is the way of life. And then in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we see a bunch of healings. That's the section we find ourselves in right now. We had three healings and then a little break where Jesus says, here's what it means to follow me. In fact, he says, here's the cost of discipleship in verses uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Then last week we looked at, he calls Matthew. He calls this tax collector and says, Follow me. And that brings us to where we are today, where Jesus continues to announce that he is here and he continues to call us to follow him. And he does that, we're going to see, with the three pictures that you just heard him talk about. The first one is a wedding in verses 14 and 15. The second picture is a piece of cloth in verse uh, 16. And then the last one uh, is the new wineskins that he talks about in verse 17. And actually, some scholars would say that verse 17 is kind of the key verse in all of the book of Matthew because it helps us understand what Matthew is really trying to prove in this gospel. So we're going to see what Jesus wants to reveal to us uh, here today as he calls out to us in this call to discipleship. So the first thing we see here in verses 14 and 15 is I believe that Jesus says, I'm giving you a call to celebrate, a call to celebrate. How do we know that? He says these disciples come to him. They say, why don't your disciples fast? Um, And this is what Jesus's answer was. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So this picture Jesus gives us here is he's saying, I am the bridegroom. I'm the groom at this wedding. Um, And uh, one of the things that we know really across all cultures, right, is that weddings are there to celebrate. It's a, it's a huge celebration. And across all cultures, weddings are full of joy and happiness. At least they're supposed to be. Okay, that's usually a big celebration no matter what part of the world you find yourself in. 
There's dancing. There's feasting. Uh, it's just a huge celebration. But when we go back to this verse here where it says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Those two words, with them, is are key words. Remember when Jesus was born back in chapter 1, the angel said, you will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And literally at this moment in time, the bridegroom is right there with them, in the body, in the flesh. And he says, it is a time to celebrate. He gives them a call to celebrate. And I think what we want to see here is we think about what is Jesus saying? If I'm calling you to celebrate, what is he calling us to celebrate? And then how will you celebrate once you realize what he's calling you to celebrate? I think first of all, as he's telling his disciples, recognize that the bridegroom has arrived. Recognize that he's here right now with you. The one that God predicted for thousands of years who would come and make all things right he is with you right now in the flesh. That's what he's telling his disciples. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, God is identified as the groom or as the bridegroom. And so when Jesus starts using this language and says, hey, the bridegroom is here right now, he's saying what was promised is coming true. Hosea chapter 2, flip over there if you've got your Bible. Hosea chapter 2, again, uh, last week we quoted from Hosea. Um, and, and the idea that Matthew goes back so often to say what Jesus is doing is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, uh, this is God talking. And remember, the story of Hosea is this prophet who God said, Hosea, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. And I want you to love her even though she's going to be unfaithful to you. In fact, she's going to run away. I want you to go back out and buy her back and keep her and love her even though she's the opposite of faithful. Because that's a picture of God's love for us. We run away from him and he says, I welcome you back. So here's what it says, verse 16, Hosea 2:16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. My Baal, Baal was the name of the, the, uh, the false gods. Verse 17, I will remove the name of the Baals from their mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Skip down to verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfastness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This picture of God saying, one day, I'm going to come and it'll be like a wedding. You're going to be joined to me with perfect love and faithfulness. And when Jesus arrives here in Matthew chapter 9 and says, I'm the bridegroom and I'm here, he's identifying himself with those words, identifying himself as God. So we want to recognize, first of all, that we are celebrating the arrival of the bridegroom. That first coming happened. He came and was born in a stable and he is here. But the second thing I think Jesus wants them to recognize is that it's not appropriate for the disciples to mourn in the middle of this moment, in this time of celebrating um, at a wedding. So if you think about it, if, if you're at a wedding uh, reception like this where people are dancing and celebrating, have you ever been at one where somebody says, all right, hold up, uh, stop the music, push pause. Uh, let's just have five minutes of mourning for all the difficulty that this married couple is going to experience over the next 50 years. Because they will experience difficulty, right? 
arguments, raising kids, loss of job, you know, all the different things we go through. But in the moment of the wedding, you don't stop and mourn those things because it's the time to celebrate. Yes, those things will come. There's a time for mourning, but there's a time for celebrating. And so in this moment right here, uh, Jesus says, it's not appropriate for my disciples to mourn because I'm here. It's time to celebrate. It's time to get out and proclaim this good news. You know, is Jesus saying that his followers should never fast? No, he's not saying that. In fact, if you go back to Matthew 6, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you fast, uh, don't do it like the Pharisees do it, but go in private, don't disfigure your face. In other words, it shouldn't be anything anyone else can see. It's a private thing that you do on your own as an act of worship to prepare yourself uh, to worship God, to follow him. But he's saying right here in this moment, my followers are not called to fast. Fasting is actually a good thing. In fact, right after the new year, uh, just to throw this out there, we're actually going to try as a church to do 21 days of prayer and fasting as we uh, seek the Lord's leading in our church. So that's coming. So it's an appropriate thing to do. But right here in this moment, Jesus says, it's not supposed to happen because I'm here. We're going to, we're celebrating this arrival right now. So recognize that the bridegroom has arrived. Recognize that right in that moment, it was not appropriate to mourn. <clears throat> and number three, uh, I think a big part of that is recognize the whole already, not yet. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Jesus has already come, but the complete fulfillment of all the prophecies has not yet happened. He's already paid for sins, but we still struggle with them and we're not completely set free from the struggle of sin in this world. Yet the work is done. The work has already been done, but the enemy is still active. The world is still broken. There are still broken people all around us. So yes, Jesus has already come. But it's not yet done. In fact, the fact that the, that John's disciples come to him say they, they understand that there's something more that they're looking for. So recognize that he has already come, but his work, his completed work is not yet done. Recognize also, this is the next part of that. Recognize that the king is coming again. In fact, Matthew tells us a lot of those things later in his book. We'll look at them as we come. Flip over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 verse 6. And so this is actually really interesting that Jesus says the bridegroom is here, so it's time to celebrate. But then what? Matthew 28, after he's crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, he ascends into heaven. And he says, I'm going to come back again. And Revelation tells us when he comes back, it's going to be a huge wedding feast. Revelation 19, verse 6, says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus... If you've trusted him, if he's your savior, 
you've been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we look forward to that next great celebration. But right now, we live in between those two celebrations. We live in between them. And so that question is, as you live in between, how will you celebrate? Jesus calls his followers to celebrate his coming. How will you celebrate? I'll just give you a couple of things to do here. Uh, One is this, is to remember. Remember. Okay, so whenever we celebrate communion as a church, I think we're doing exactly what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do here. Uh, We are remembering his first coming, what he came to do in his first coming. He showed us how to live, but more importantly, he died on the cross in our place. He was buried, and then he was raised again on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life. And so that's one incredible way we can celebrate this first coming of our King. Whenever we gather together as a church family to celebrate communion, we are remembering what he did. We remember and we rejoice. And then I would say this also, how else do you celebrate? I think when we gather here on Sunday and we proclaim to each other in song the great things that God has done, That's a picture of this celebrating. We are giving God the glory for who he is and what he's done. And so this whole idea of Jesus calling us to celebrate because the king has come, that's one of the things we do every week when we gather. Our public worship together, so important to remind one another through word, through song, through offering, all those different ways we worship together is a celebration of what God has done for this group of people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We're called to celebrate. Worship in the hope of that coming wedding feast when you know that we will join him. We're going to come back to this, but if you think about it, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's make sure as many people are invited as possible, right? Do you know anyone who hasn't been invited yet? Send an invitation, not from you, but from Jesus. So it's a call to celebrate. That's the first thing we see here when he says, it's not a time for mourning. Because Jesus has come, it's a time to celebrate. Number two, verse 16, we see that Jesus says he is calling us to wholeness, a call to wholeness. Basically, this, as we look at this verse, Jesus says, I have come to make you whole. The king calls us to embrace wholeness. Look at the verse. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So this is kind of a little mini parable that Jesus gives us, okay? This idea of, of a little piece of cloth. He says you would never put a brand new piece of cloth on a hole because the old fabric doesn't shrink at the same way that a new, new piece of fabric shrinks. And so it's this picture of cloth that actually, I'm going to guess, many of us have a hard time relating to, right? <laughs> How many of you have, uh, don't show me your hands, but have, have sewed a patch on a piece of clothing in the last year? I'm going to guess not very many. A few of you probably have. I grew up on a, on this farm in Kansas. And so was, I had four, there were five boys in my family. There were, I had four brothers. There were a lot of blue jeans and a lot of holes in the knees, right? And so we had some, some patches that were sewn on. Um, it was necessary, but it was always a question, should I patch that pair of jeans or should I not patch that pair of jeans, right? Have they disintegrated so far that it's worth putting a patch on or maybe they're just too far gone and I need to get rid of it? 
should I patch it or should I not patch it? You know, that's actually not a very common question anymore. Like I said, I think very few people actually still patch their clothes. It's just the way we live. We go out and buy a new one here in America. Um, but actually, have you noticed that, in fact, uh, a lot of jeans with holes are actually being sold right now? Okay, I make fun of my kids for this, okay? Uh, people actually want to buy the, the holes in jeans are actually desirable. So this analogy breaks down a little for us. Here's one of my favorite memes from the year, okay? If you can read that, here's three girls walking with their ice cream cones in their torn jeans. And it says, this is when you and your friends survive a bear attack and celebrate with ice cream. All right? So do you patch it or not to patch it? You know, uh, it's the look people are going for. And I have to ask myself, like, what would my grandmother say if she saw my kids wearing jeans like this? I don't care. It's, it's, all, it's no big deal. So here's the thing. Jesus is calling us to wholeness. When he talks about this idea of patching an old garment, he's basically saying this. I'm not coming to patch things up and make you a better version of who you were. <clears throat> I'm not coming to cover up the flaws and hide them with a, a patch that might not fit quite right. Jesus is saying, I've come to restore you and make you whole. A new person. You know, I think we're tempted. This is what humans do. We're tempted to pursue other things to patch up our problems. Okay. Riches, maybe. We think if I get enough money, it'll cover up the sadness I have or the emptiness I have or uh, the hurt that I have. Riches, relationships. If I just have the right girlfriend or the right boyfriend or uh, the right group of friends, it'll cover up all my needs and I can, I can blend in with them. Riches and relationships and even religion is a patch that people use try to cover up their needs. If I do enough good things, then I'll feel better about myself. People will like me. Uh, maybe God will even like me if I'm good enough. Uh, and I can just cover up whatever. As long as I do more bad, good than bad, everything's going to be good. I'm going to patch myself all up. Jesus says, I've come to restore you, to make you whole. You know, those other things are just patches. You're trying to cover up the brokenness, cover up the sin. But Jesus is calling you to wholeness. And he says, wholeness can only be found in me. Can't be found in riches, relationships, religion, or whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. He says, I can make you whole. I can make you new. Come to the king and he will make you whole. You know, in this text, he doesn't get real specific about how he's going to do that. But guess what? That's the book of Matthew. He goes on and lays it all out. And we get to the end of the book of Matthew. We see that his blood washes away all our sins. So it's a call to wholeness. Come to the king. He can make you whole. Don't pursue any of those other things. They can't last. The third thing we see here in verse 17, this key verse, is a call to new life. A call to new life. We saw the call to celebrate with the wedding, the call to wholeness with the cloth, and now we see the call to new life with the wineskins. Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. 
So we have to ask this question. I, I mean, this is another one of those illustrations Jesus uses is wineskins. When's the last time you saw a wineskin? Uh, probably right now as you look up on the screen, okay? That might be the first time you've seen a wineskin. I've never seen one in person. All I've ever seen is pictures of them. But think about this. It's, it's like this. If you're buying wine today or any beverage, you buy it in a bottle or a jug. Those didn't exist back then. They did have clay pots and things like that. But in order to do uh, like fermentation, a lot of times they would store it in a wineskin, something made out of animal hide or animal uh, intestines. Um, and basically the idea was this. It was a storage container. Think of a canteen, okay? And a canteen to carry the wine or to store the wine. So Jesus says old wineskins can't hold new wine. So what are the old wineskins? And I think what we see him saying, and we know this, I'll show you why from the book of Matthew, that the old wine and the old wineskins are the law of Moses, the sacrificial system, the old way of following God. Jesus says, I have come and I'm bringing something entirely new. In fact, what I'm bringing, if we try to add that into the old system and modify the old system a little bit, It'll burst the wineskins because it was never designed to do that. See, the Old Testament law was designed to point people to God. They could know God and they could trust God based on that law. But Jesus brings something even better. He says, I'm fulfilling all that. And now you need to trust me. You know, what Jesus says is, I'm not trying to renovate the law of Moses. I'm not trying to mix in law a little bit of grace with that old law that you had. He says, you're not saved by the law. You are saved by grace, by the gift of God. Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing. This new thing fulfills the old thing. And this new thing gives you new life. So that's the call to new life. And so the question I think Jesus is asking his disciples and anyone who hears this is, do you have that new life? Have you experienced the new life? Are you living the new life right now? We're going to come back to that too, but let's talk for a minute about the new wine. Jesus says that I've brought new wine that can't be put under the old wineskins. Look at this verse from back in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Fulfill them. The key word there is fulfill. In other words, he brings to completion whatever the law and the prophets were supposed to be doing. He's not pitching them out and saying those are no good. He's saying those were good and wonderful, accomplished exactly what God wanted them to. I'm fulfilling them and then leading you forward in this journey. So the spirit of the law, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says the spirit of the law is still intact. The heart to love God, to follow God and love his people. But the letter of the law is no longer valid. So he, but it's also interesting, Jesus in his teaching, he reaffirms, uh, let's think about the Ten Commandments, for example. All Ten Commandments, Jesus specifically reaffirms all of them. The only one that he doesn't just absolutely say you still need to follow would be the law of the Sabbath. In fact, the New Testament, uh, uh, or the law of tithing, I'm sorry. It, it doesn't specifically lay out all these things. Yet, you still see, even in Jesus' discussion about the Sabbath with the Pharisees, we're going to see some of this in the next couple of weeks, he still says it's the heart that matters. Follow God. Have a heart of rest. Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing. 
Let's look for a second about this heart of the law. Jesus says it's all about loving God, a heart full of love for God, and a heart full of love for others. What does Jesus say about the law of Moses? In the book of Matthew, there's actually a, this is one of the major themes throughout the gospel of Matthew, okay? This comparison, this ongoing thing between Matthew, I mean, between Moses and Jesus. Uh, and you see what Matthew really is making a case for here is that he's saying Jesus is a new and greater Moses. In fact, he replaces Moses. What we may not understand, not being Jewish, is that that is next door to blasphemy, okay? Because God revealed himself through Moses. And so God said, Moses, give the people my law. And so people revered Moses above all other prophets, all other teachers in the Old Testament. They didn't think he was divine, but they said, Moses gave us the word of the, of the Lord. So the word of Moses is as good as the word of the Lord. And they had an incredible respect for him. But Matthew, throughout his book, draws some comparisons, but ends up saying that Jesus is a greater Moses. Look at some of the similarities here. They have a similar birth narrative, okay? Moses, uh, remember when he was born back in Exodus chapter 2, King Pharaoh, the evil king, is trying to kill all the male babies. What happens in Matthew? When King Herod, this wicked king, finds out that Jesus has been born, he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and says, let's kill all the male babies. There's a similarity. Moses had to flee from Egypt. Jesus had to flee from Judea. Another thing, teaching from the mountain. In Exodus chapters 19 and 20, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God revealed the law to him. He said, here's how my people are to follow me. Here's all the rules and instructions. What happens in Matthew chapter 5 and 7, 5 through 7? It says, Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down and seeing the crowds, he began to teach them. So he delivers this teaching from God on a mountain. Here's another category, their conduct. And this is actually where things start to, to vary a little bit. If you go back to Numbers chapter 20, we see God giving Moses a command and Moses gets angry with the people. And disobeys God's command. He fails. He has at least one moment of failure. And as a result, God says, you can't enter the, the promised land of Canaan. But when we come to Jesus and his conduct, he never fails. He never sins. Back in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil tempts him with all those amazing things, does he give in? No. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way as we are. Yet without sin. So there's something different about this Jesus. He's not flawed, even like Moses was flawed. The transfiguration in Matthew 17, flip over there. We're going to hit this probably uh, later this year or early next year. The transfiguration is a story of how Jesus goes up on a mountain. A couple things happen in here. Verse 3, uh, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Do you know the other Gospels, or at least the Gospel of Mark, puts it in the other order. It says Elijah and Moses. Uh, and so, again, Matthew's making some point here to say, hey, notice Moses is there, right there with Jesus. And what happens? It says Jesus became transfigured. Um, their clothes became white as light. His clothes became white as light. His whole self was just this, like they're grasping for words to describe how bright he was. Contrast that with Moses in the Old Testament. It said Moses' face shone uh, as he delivered God's law, uh, but he didn't 
have the full transfiguration that Jesus had. And here's the other key difference. Matthew 17, verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. He recognizes him as God. That never happened to Moses. Moses was not divine. The people knew that. And yet here in Matthew, we see people recognizing Jesus as divine. His authority. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. He says, I have all the authority. Only God can make that claim. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. He doesn't say, teach them to observe all that Moses taught you, right? In other words, he places himself as a higher figure of authority than Moses. And y'all, that is a major, major thing. If you read the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is based on what God revealed through Moses. And Jesus says, I am a new authority. I'm a greater authority. I am God himself. And that brings us to the task. If you think about what was Moses' task, God said, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. I want you to lead them out, take them into the promised land. Uh, And also, here's the revelation about me so that they will know how to follow me. Well, Jesus' task is not to show people the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Whereas Moses revealed the teaching and the law, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God and of his love. Follow him. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. And when we see him talking about this idea of new wineskins, and he's saying, I've come to supersede the law of Moses. He's not calling us to a modified form of religion. He's calling us to a new life because of his fulfilled and completed work on the cross. And so when you hear him calling you to this new life, as he calls the disciples, think about what kind of a new life this is. The words of one of our songs this morning were, there's a power that can empty a grave. Okay, that's a new kind of power. And when Jesus says, I want you to share in this kind of new life, what does he want us to do? The first thing is to believe it, trust it, trust him alone. Second Corinthians five seventeen. behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're a new creation because of what Jesus did for you? Trust him, trust only him, not yourself, not any other patch you might try to put on yourself. Don't trust other methods of becoming right with God. Believe him. Trust in him alone. Second thing, God says this new life, I want you to live it. It's not there for you to put on a shelf and just look at. He says, I've given you a new life. Now go out and live it. If you think about eternal life, uh, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have is in present tense, okay? That doesn't mean, hey, when you get to heaven, you're going to have eternal life. The moment you trust Jesus, your eternal life begins. And so he wants you to live this new life right now. Matthew spells out a lot of what it looks like to live that life, to love God and love others. That sums it all up. 
That actually sums up the Old Testament as well. But it's possible because of Jesus. Live it with joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Live that new life. Walk with him. That picture of walking with him. Walk with him each day. And then the last thing, believe it, live it, and share it. This is too good to keep to yourself. If you have the most amazing thing, this new life, this new wine that Jesus has provided, share it with others. In fact, I would say when we talk about living this new life, loving God and loving others, one of the best ways that you can show your love for God and show your love for others is to share this amazing thing with others. Share the gift that you've been given. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this call to follow you, this call to discipleship, God. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate, Lord, that we would be made whole through your Son alone. And God, that we would live this new life that you've given us. Lord, help us to believe it, to live it, and to share it, God. And uh, Lord, I just pray for each person here as they go out from here, that you would open up doors of opportunity, God, so that we would be able to multiply your love to many, many more people. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.